The first reading is from Zechariah, chapter 9, and it's printed on page 6 of your orders of service. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And now from John chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a liter of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to, be, to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used, it, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, Many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went up to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat 
falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. So it was Palm Sunday, uh, the week before Christ died, um, which is why there was a palm when you walked in. Did you notice it? Did you notice the palms up the front here? Surely noticed it. Surely was always going to notice it. I think my wife bought them last night. She went to Bunnings. I think the plan is to put them in the ground over the year and see if we have plenty for next year. These thumbs are not green, but my wife's thumbs are. I think that's the plan. Um, Keep pages six and seven open, those texts, and the outline on page eight. I'm going to make one small change if you're writing notes at point number three of your outline. It's going to say one model of praise, just to give you the heads up. I know that's destabilizing. Shall I pray? As Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowd cried, Hosanna. Father, enter our hearts, we pray. And as you do so, in the power of your Holy Spirit, may we be found to say, Hosanna, save us. You are the Savior. We would see Jesus. Touch our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. So today's text, you'll notice, has crowds. Not unusual in the Gospels. Look at verse 9 on the top of page 7. Meanwhile, a large crowd came to see Jesus and Lazarus who'd been raised from the dead. I'd go and see him. I'd want to see that. In verse 12, the next day, a great crowd that had come for the festival for Passover, they praised Jesus, entering Jerusalem with palm branches. It's Palm Sunday. And down in verse 17, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. So Jesus then is gaining deep popularity even as his days close in, uh, as his death approaches, deep popularity after and because of the raising of Lazarus. Popularity that bothered the status quo, you can see that in verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another what politicians have said since then, see this is getting us nowhere, nothing's happening. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Could the Pharisees have possibly known that two millennia later the whole world would go after him? There is still a global fascination with Jesus Christ. An Australian recent report claims, believer or not believer, 54% of Australians ranked Jesus as the number one most influential person in history, beating Albert Einstein in second place at 16%, and Charles Darwin in third at 9%, daylight between number one and two. And yet, despite all this admiration, there are not many disciples of Jesus. Very few are. One of the things that Palm Sunday tells us, set in the context of his, day, his death days later, is that mere admiration is not what Jesus requires. He's looking for something altogether different from you, from me. Soren Kierkegaard, 
once wrote, the admirer never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays it safe, though in words, phrases, songs, he is inexhaustible about how highly he prizes Christ. Yet he renounces nothing. He will not reconstruct his life. He will not let his life express what he supposedly admires. Not so the follower. That's a pretty challenging quote. Jesus then needs no more admirers. He demands followers, disciples, learners, students, people willing to sit at his feet and reconstruct their life. In other words, he wants worshippers. Listen, verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Classic Jesus. And even more classic, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Hardly admiration. Palm Sunday, Sunday then teaches us the limits of mere religion. That is, discipleship is not a mere two-step process. He commands it, I do it. God commands praise, you turn up on Sunday to give it. That's what happens effectively on Palm Sunday. They turn up and they praise God. They're excited, we'll come to why in a moment. And yet within the narrative, the extraordinary thing that happens next will gazump any idea that my task in life is merely to find out what God wants to praise and to praise Him. Their religious duty, while admirable, is not where the story goes. The narrative, including here in John 12, takes us to Christ's death, where we're leading on until, until Friday. So we continue our Lent series, scintillatingly called The Verbs of Discipleship, in John's Gospel, and the verb today is to praise. Five brief points. One, I'm going to talk about the act of praise, uh, looking at, at what happened on Palm Sunday in verses 12 and 3. Then the reasons to praise, why would you want to praise in verses 14 to 16? A model of praise in Mary at the beginning of our text. Then the limits to our praise and the ultimate moment, the ultimate act of praise through which we find our voice. So firstly, the act of praise in verses 12 and 13. It's right here in our text. They praise Jesus. They praise the King John 12 is a pared-down version of the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. The synoptics slow down, explain this moment in more detail. In John 12, it's just five verses, verses 12 to 16. In verse 12, we read that a great crowd had come for the Jewish festival for the Passover, which is all about God saving people through blood from their Jewish history. They're there, they see Jesus, verse 13, they took palm branches and they went out to meet him just outside of the city, shouting, Hosanna, which is why we sang the first song today. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. So they recognize something about Jesus as he enters Jerusalem, the way Many people in Australia recognize that there's something about Jesus. They recognize him as king. 
and they cry a prayer of praise and adoration. Hosanna, which means save us, saviour. Save us, Hosanna. You've come in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King. Now, this is good. This is not bad. This is good. As Jesus goes through the gates of Jerusalem, they recall Psalm 118, which we read to call you to worship today. Verse 19, open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. Then importantly, Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone the builders rejected, the one they tossed aside, that stone has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118, verse 25, Lord, save us, Hosanna. Lord, grant us success, victory. So the act of praise here is the act of recognizing greatness. This is God's King. This is the Messiah. They can articulate it. They can say it, and they say it out loud. Praise, then, is a subset of worship. Praise is what you do with your lips, and therefore your heart, we'll come to that in a moment, worship is what you do with your life. The Book of Common Prayer and the General Thanksgiving brings the two together, and you can see it on page four, the bottom of page of the, uh, the prayer there, give us such a sense of all your goodness, I'll do it in the Book of Common Prayer, do you mind if I do it in 17th century language? Please indulge me. Listen to this. And we beseech thee, give us that due sense of all thy mercies, that our hearts may be unfeignedly thankful, and that we show forth thy praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to thy service, and by walking before thee in holiness and righteousness all our days the act of praise. Secondly, the reason to praise, the reason to worship. In God's world, you praise God first for who He is. Blessed is the King of Israel. In our meritocracy, especially in Australia when we are into the tall poppy syndrome, it's all about praising people for what they've done, which leads, of course, to a hunger and a thirst for approval. On Palm Sunday, they praise Jesus as king. They're not ready for what he'll do next, but they get that he's king. Uh, Messiah come to free Jerusalem up from Roman control. In the Bible, we praise God for who he is first. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the creator, the redeemer, the savior. He is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. And he is the humble one. He is the great and humble one, God our Saviour. Jesus makes clear that God is the humble one by choosing a donkey to ride in on Jerusalem, a very humble enemy, animal, you know, my steed, my kingdom for a horse, not my kingdom for a donkey. Of course, the donkey is King David's choice of transport. Of course, the donkey is in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, that first reading, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly 
riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of the donkey bringing peace from sea to shining sea. The prophecy is the reason in verse 14 that Jesus found a donkey. Um, uh, more explored in the Synoptic Gospels. But he finds a donkey, he sits on it, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion, see your king is coming, seated on a donkey's, on a donkey. And the palm branches come down as Jesus enters Jerusalem. They know that he comes in the name of the Lord. There are rumors that he can conquer death. You get that from Lazarus. That's why he's gaining in popularity. But they don't, do they get the donkey? They certainly don't get what happens next. You know that from verse 16. At first, his disciples didn't understand this. They don't know what's going on. Even still, the reason to praise God is for who He is. He is the, blessed is the King of Israel. And also what He has done. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. He's come humbly. He is Israel's King and He's come to save us. Presumably, they think, from Roman control of the city. Verse 16, at first His disciples did not understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified. When did that happen? Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Once you've worked out who he is and what he's done, another reason to praise God is that we find ourselves, we discover our true souls as we respond to our Creator and our Redeemer for who he is and what he's done. And so we find ourselves being able to delight in His praise. It's one of the things that's been so tough in this last year. We find joy as we praise. We gain something when we express our joy. Something in our souls is touched when praise pushes past our lips. C.S. Lewis perfectly said, listen to this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. And so it's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are, even in old age. The, de the delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good she is or how good he is, to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in a ditch. You ever driven with kids? To hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with. Or in the words of Tim Keller, you can't get at the joy until you get out the joy. Sing joyfully in a few moments' time. Jesus is God's King. He's come to save. He's come to rule the world from Jerusalem to usher in eternal life. He's come to bring His kingdom. And yet it won't be from Jerusalem after having removed Roman control. It'll be from Jerusalem to the whole world after having removed a greater enemy than Rome itself. Jesus will say before Pilate, in a few days' time, my kingdom is not of this world. 
if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest from the Jewish leaders, but they're not fighting. They're not fighting for a bunch of reasons, and this is one of them. But now my kingdom is from another place. Is it act of praise, reasons for praise. Thirdly, you get in this text a model, and I look at this model, and I'm like, how can I be like her? She's the one I want to be. Mary is unselfconsciously our model of praise in verses 1 to 11. She models love, affection. Mary and Martha have witnessed Jesus bring their brother back from the tomb. There's the greater enemy than Rome. And there they all are in their home. Martha is serving. Lazarus is very much alive, surprisingly, and reclining at the table. I love the detail. In verse 3, Mary took a half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume. Judas will tell us how expensive, a year's wages. Tell me what that is. 100k? I don't know. She poured perfume on Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair. It's not pretty, but it's beautiful. And the house, we're told, and I love, love the detail, it was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Everybody smells the love. Everybody smells the affection, the devotion. They know how expensive it is. Judas will say so. Is the fragrance that filled the room the fragrance of life and love, love of Mary, or is it of death? Jesus will die in a moment's time. Judas Iscariot pipes up, and Mary is clearly contrasted to Judas Iscariot. We find out that Judas has his hand in the till. He says, uh, it's worth a year's wages. Why didn't, why didn't we sell the, the, the perfume and give it to the poor? It's virtue signaling, and it's faux righteousness. He doesn't care about it because he was a thief, we're told in John chapter 12. Which, by the way, ahead of the betrayal of Jesus, you find out that Judas had what my friend Steve calls a goat in the tank. A goat in the tank. You say, what's a goat in the tank? My friend Steve once took a group of friends on a holiday to a farm, into a holiday home. And he gets there on day one and he says to his friends, the water tastes funny. And his friends say, no, it doesn't. The next day he says, I'm sure the water tastes funny. And a friend of his says, yes, I can see what you mean now. By the third day, they all agreed that the water tastes funny. They followed the pipes to the water tank, lifted the lid, and there was a half-dead goat in the tank. And that became a symbol for a group of friends of the notion that someone just didn't have a momentary lapse of reason. It wasn't just that there was a, a thing that happened and you slipped. Judas has a goat in the tank, a pre-existing problem. He loves money more than he loves life, Jesus' life. So Jesus says, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you. That will be true. But you will not always have me. I'm leaving, he'll say, in the farewell discourse in the coming chapters. 
you'll always have the poor, they'll always be a concern. But here in front of you, God's King, the Messiah, He's about to go. He's about to die. That's why Jesus is talking about the day of His burial. You will not always have with me. The, the narrative leans forward towards His death. There's an example. Thirdly, there are limits to our praise, which leads us to the final point. The triumphant entry in Jerusalem is, is fascinating because at first glance it tells us God says, you know, praise Him. Psalm 118, we go ahead and praise Him. And it even gives us a model there, uh, weak as it is, to praise God with our lips, to understand that He's King and to praise Him. But remember, I, my contention here is that discipleship is not a two-step process. He commands praise, we turn up on Sunday to give it. Something else is needed. Their religious duty, while admirable, is not where the story goes. It's not like the story ends here saying, finally, we've got somebody praising God. Christ's death is where the story grow, goes. Christ's resurrection is what is needed. In Matthew's account, we're told that all the city was moved when Jesus entered Jerusalem, and yet the city that welcomed him within days will spit him out. Not the same crowd, but theologically, the same city. One crowd cried, Hosanna, save us. Another crowd, maybe some common people, who knows? Another crowd will yell, crucify him, but God was at work in both. One crowd, save us. Another crowd, crucify him. Amazing how God aligns his purposes. Within a week, this king, strange as he is, humble and riding on a donkey, will die. And he'll do it to bring the peace promised in Zechariah. There will be, come on Friday, there will be a frenzy of bloodthirsty accusation. They'll go at him. It starts in John's Gospel with the raising of Lazarus, leading to political frustration. This is getting us nowhere. See how the whole world has gone after him. We've got to put a stop to this and how quickly they put a stop to it. So they thought. It's not enough to praise him. Jesus, the next the days, will weep over Jerusalem. Religious duty and admiration are not what is needed. What is needed is a new heart. What is needed is a new spirit. What is needed is a new power to turn religious interest into discipleship. What is needed is the answer to the prayer, Hosanna, save us. What is needed is for the King to come and save not just to teach that I might learn, although I want to learn, certainly not to impress, but to save hearts, to save lives, to save lips like mine. There are limits to our praise, which draws me to Jesus Christ, who provided the ultimate moment of praise, the ultimate act of praise, by which in Him we find our voice. Jesus' act of going to the cross was the ultimate act of praise, the ultimate act of worship. Jesus is the one true worshiper. The Son obeyed the Father unto death. That's worship, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to thy service. He had to die. It was the only way. Jesus, in response to the news that Greeks came who wanted to see Jesus, 
that news comes, and in verse 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, if the grain of wheat falls to the ground and goes into the ground, it will produce many seeds. The moment of Christ's death, the grain of wheat falling to the ground and dying, is the moment or the hour of His glory. The grain of wheat must fall to the ground in order to rise again. Otherwise, otherwise Jesus remains a single seed for whom you might admire. After all, wasn't He a wonderful person? But if it dies, says Jesus, it becomes many seeds. In Him, life, shoots of green. The seed becomes many seeds in resurrection, and that is how the King saves. Hosanna in the highest. It's the only way the world goes out to see Him. Henry Hart Milnan wrote a famous 19th century hymn, Right On, Right On in Majesty. And he gets it perfectly when he says this, Right on, right on in majesty, in lowly pomp. Right on to die. I'll say it again. Right on, right on in majesty, in lowly pomp. Right on to die. Bow your meek head to mortal pain. Then take, O God, your power and reign. Jesus said the only way to life is via death. His death. He is the grain of seed that falls to the ground and dies, and his death will produce many followers, not mere admirers, many disciples, many seeds, many people willing to give up their old self to find their true self. Anyone who loves their life is self-protective, fulfilling all desires, the way of the flesh, they'll lose it while anyone, classic Jesus, who hates their life in this world, they've got a, a yearning for another one, they will keep it for eternal life. So what do we do? You're here today and you're thinking, I just thought it was religious duty, and I'm trying real hard. Where do you start? I think you start in the request of the Greeks who came to see Jesus in verses 20 to 22. They came... They went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. By the way, those words are written in the Salvation Army on the south side of the city in a plaque above the gallery, or what might you, you might say is the bell tower. If you look behind you, uh, below the bell tower, you can imagine the word, Sir, we would see Jesus, and it's a reminder to whoever is up the front, who's ever playing, who's ever leading, who's ever praying, who's ever preaching, Sir, we would see Jesus. That's, what, that's, that's it, that's my task, to answer the question of anybody who comes to me to say, I want to see Jesus. It's so simple, so uncomplicated, so uncynical, and yet it's where we need to be to gain this new heart of praise. Sir, we would see Jesus. Let's pray.
to move our hearts towards a praise of Him in, in His mercy, in His power. Let me read these words from Jonathan Edwards. When you praise Him in prayer, let it not be with coldness and indifferency. When you praise Him in your closet, let your whole soul be active therein. When you praise Him in singing, don't barely make a noise without any stirring of affection in the heart, without any internal melody. Surely if the angels are so astonished at God's mercy to you and do even shout with joy and admiration at the sight of God's grace to you, then you yourself, on whom this grace is bestowed, have much more reason to shout, Father, give us this internal melody. Save us now. Save us from mere admiration. Save us from mere duty. Save us from mere religious words. We pray that we might praise you, not only with our lips, but in our lives. Come, thou fount of every blessing, and tune my heart to sing thy grace. Even though we wander, we want to be found in him, many seeds from the one seed, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, the mount of Christ's death, the mount of thy redeeming love. Amen.